Hi, friends. I was excited to sit down and interview Dana Nelson, a young woman living in Minnesota with a rare cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma, an aggressive cancer which forms in the soft tissues. Dana was diagnosed while living in Finland at the age of 22. It was a pleasure listening and conversing with her, as she is the first individual we've interviewed for the Death with Dignity podcast who is in a similar position as myself, a young adult living with a terminal disease, simply looking to have a choice during their end-of-life experience. Dana takes the time to share her interests, motivations, and how cancer has both positively and negatively impacted her life. We thank Dana for displaying tremendous compassion and courage while taking the necessary risks to empower those individuals fighting for a choice. Enjoy the episode. Awesome. Well, we're we're here with Dana today, everyone. And fill us in. Yeah. Tell us about yourself, (laughs) Dana. We always like to start with giving the our guests just the chance to kind of Tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your age, where you're from, background, any family you want to share about or, you know, um, hobbies, all that good stuff. Sure. Um, yeah, I am Dana. I'm 25. Oh, sorry. I just turned 26. This is not the first time that I've made that mistake on recording. <laughs> I'm 26 and um, I live with my parents in Blaine, Minnesota, a suburb of Minneapolis. And um, right now, uh, I just had stable scans yesterday. So that's good news. Um, but I don't know, whenever I have scans and I get either good or bad news, it always kind of throws me into a weird place. I'm kind of still processing it, figuring out how I feel and everything. Um, but in general, that's like really good news. I can continue doing the chemo that I'm doing right now and making plans. And so um, I am really addicted to online shopping at the moment. <laughs> I get government money and, <laughs> and I am just like super addicted to online shopping. Like two years ago, Dana would have been so mad at me for how much <laughs> I am investing in fast fashion right now, but it just makes me happy. So got to do go. what you got to do. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Whatever makes you happy. Absolutely. Yeah. So what else? Tell us more. Um, I feel like sometimes, and maybe you can speak to this at some point too. I'm not sure how long you've been um diagnosed or sick with cancer but uh yeah it's like there's way more to each person right and i never want to just focus on someone and just their disease right so yeah yeah anything else you'd love to share or you'd like to share we'd love to hear it um you know some oh, you know, stuff that's really important to you sure um i guess like when i was 19 this is a pretty important detail when I was 19, I moved to Finland by myself. Dang. Um, yeah, it was it was crazy. It was just like my dream to do that. 
I just had this weird obsession with Finland because I was a musician and um, like a classical trombonist. And my teacher here, who was in the Minnesota Orchestra, he um, he's Finnish. And I was just like little Lizzie McGuire girl, like really romanticizing the idea of Europe as a whole and thinking that like Finland, of course, since it's in the same continent as like Venice, it probably has small canals and colorful buildings. <laughs> and so I, I thought Finland must be really cool. So I went there and the first morning I was ever in Finland, I actually threw up because I was so, so like, I don't know, just like in shock by how it wasn't how I expected and how I was finally there and everything. Finland is a lot like here, honestly. But I mean, um, as far as like, like their government and like their economy, it's a lot better. It's kind of a socialist um, type of thing. They would never say that, but schooling is free even for foreigners at the time schooling was free um so i got to go to school when i got sick i got like pretty much free treatment really cheap treatment even though i was a foreigner um and i was never like a citizen i was just a resident so uh they treated me really really well and um and that was that was really really cool i totally took advantage of that and um I, I don't know. I loved Finland. I That's loved so cool. living there. What, what were you doing over there? Uh, did you work? Did you go to school? And how long were you living there for? I went to school uh, for like three years, almost, I think. And then I got sick. So then I was like going through treatment. My, my first two and a half years of treatment were in Finland. And um, then I, during like a little pause when I was like stable, my disease was stable um, and I was able to work. I got a couple jobs. I worked in a fancy restaurant called Monos, and uh, it was super stressful, so I quit. <laughs> and uh, then, then I worked in this amazing little bakery that was it was small, and I could work there just by myself. I could run the whole place by myself, and it was it was such an amazing experience. Um, and then COVID hit, so then I lost my job because it just shut down, they shut down the bakery permanently. And, um, and that was really, that was really hard. Uh, and that was kind of the beginning of the end of my time in Finland. I stayed for some more months, but then um, I ran out of money and simultaneously my cancer became super aggressively stage four. Uh, and they were like, you should move home because you we think you know if you're not lucky you might only have until christmas and it was september at the time so um my mom came to finland and she packed me up and i moved back to the states in uh november 2020 so it's been like a year and a half that i've been back here and um I, I'm still, it's still weird because, you know, my whole young adulthood was in Finland. And so I, yeah, I was, I was studying originally there. Very cool. Thanks. Wow. There's, yeah, that's, that's a lot of, lot to unpack there. What, yeah. what, um, hmm. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Did I ask you that already? Um, well, yes, about family a little bit. 
And I do. I have three half siblings, um, two from my mom and one from my dad, but they're a lot older than I am. So we we didn't grow up. We never grew up like in the same household. Uh, my youngest sister is 17 years older than I am. So, um, yeah, she. So there's definitely that age gap. Yeah, um, there's an age gap. So I was honestly like closer with my nieces and nephews growing up. And sure. we're, my siblings and I, we have a good relationship, but it's just different age and different experience. My parents were in different places when they raised them, you know? Yeah, of course. My mom um, has a, an older sister who's, I believe, 12 years older. So I feel like it's kind of similar in a sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, just different times of life. Yeah. So tell us about, and you can always do anything that you want to share, like go back to any personal stuff that you want to share about, like whatever is great. Um, but since we kind of got to that point, I guess, tell us about when you were in Finland and when you were initially diagnosed, if you don't mind telling us about what that was like and maybe some of the signs where you could tell something wasn't quite right. Yeah, um, it was a really long journey as I think, I don't know, um, I don't know your story either, but maybe it's the same that you had a, a long journey um, advocating for yourself before you finally got the diagnosis uh, because we're young and they, <laughs> the doctors don't expect that it's going to be cancer. So they just kind of, you know, for me, my tumor was in my sinus, my maxillary sinus. And so it blocked my right nostril. And so for, that was like the first sign of it, that anything was wrong was I couldn't breathe out of my, right nostril and then funky stuff started coming out of my nose and I started to have kind of like a a droop kind of thing because the tumor was like pushing against my eye so there were those kind of things but they were all subtle enough and it wasn't really causing pain too much pain you know nothing that was unbearable so um I just, I spent six months going to different doctors and advocating, trying to advocate for my myself and my health and push for answers that I didn't get for a really long time. Um, and finally, I I reached out. To, it was a sandwich there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. About it. Yeah. Solid. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm jealous. I love <laughs> yeah. sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. We got this coffee oh, yeah. place right by the the beach. It's called the Cup. I'll have to give you a little preview, but it's called the Cheesy Toast. Oh, and hell bacon, yeah. tomato, and cheese. So they put this like really good seasoning on it. It's killer. So that's the combo. Again, yeah, right by the water. So we usually get some coffee, uh, sandwich, hang out by the beach. So yeah, <gasps> that's why we were a little delayed. Again, appreciate that. Um your patience. If you're ever out here in California too, we'll take a stroll to the cup. It's a good spot. Yeah. Oh, that mm -hmm. sounds like a dream. That sounds like For an sure. honest to God dream. Cool. Um, cool. <laughs> um, well, I'm yeah. sorry for disrupting you. Uh, the side no. combo on sandwiches. But, um, sandwiches are worth it, man. But um, For sure. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, it was hard in a different country, basically. It's hard 
in general, I think. But um, in another country, it was really hard to uh, to try to like even know where to look for answers. And so I finally made a Facebook post after going to one doctor who refused to even look up my nose. Like usually they were like kind of peering up there to see what they could see. But this one was like, no, I'm not going to look up your nose and I'm not going to refer you to any. It was like a public doctor. And so she wasn't going to refer me to any like specialist until I picked up the um, antibiotics that she prescribed from the pharmacy and took them. I never took them. She didn't know. But like <laughs> she wow. that's what she said. And I, I had already taken a bunch of antibiotics, steroids nothing really did anything. So I, I left that appointment crying and I made a Facebook post. I actually like went and sat in the lobby of that doctor's appointment and right there, then and there made a Facebook post asking my Finnish friends if they have any suggestions of what I should do, where I should go. And um, there happened to be an ENT who um, my musician friends knew really well because he also did some stuff with like I'm a brass player and so he did some stuff with like embouchure which is like the muscles in your face uh, that help you play a brass instrument and so he also was like he did some therapy with that so my a lot of my brass player friends knew him and knew that he was an ENT so they 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 suggested that I go to to meet him and I did. And he looked at my nose, the really long thing that freaked me out. <laughs> and then um, he saw something, but he he was very optimistic that it wasn't cancer. So he he didn't say anything to me that day. And he sent me along um, for a couple scans and sent me along to this surgeon um, and I met the surgeon on Friday, what was Friday the 13th of April, and he shook my hand, said, I'm Aro, and I said, I'm Dana, and then he basically said, you have a tumor, and I was like, what? I was alone at this appointment. I had no idea that that news was coming, and I said, so does that mean I have cancer? And he said, we think so, because I had already had metastases to my neck. So they were quite sure that the tumor was not benign because there were lumps in my neck. And so that's that's my time leading up to the diagnosis. And um, that, was, that was obviously like really crazy to been surreal to be in Finland and get the diagnosis by myself and go through all of those like first days and weeks of life with cancer by myself um my mom eventually came to finland after about a month she she got to finland and she ended up it was only planned that she was going to stay for like six weeks but she went home and went back to the u.s after those six weeks and i was really really struggling so she came back and stayed for the whole year and so i I had her to help me navigate my first year of treatment, which was a blessing and a curse because um, obviously like needed her for a lot of things in a lot of moments. Um, 
but it made I think it actually like drew me away from my friends because mom was always there and she was so easy to be around and it was just it was just hard to go see my friends and go do anything that felt like you know more effort or less comfort than with mom mom was always there so um so I think I I didn't like rely on my friends very much um until after mom left and then I was out of treatment for a while and I I was very very lonely without her for a little while so then I started to rely on my friends more and I I have great friends um in Finland and here but you know my whole young adulthood was in Finland so some of my best friends I actually just got off the phone with one of them um like an hour ago and um they're they're so great and they're so willing to do anything they can for me even from across an ocean that's fantastic one of my questions i have just hearing a little bit about the start of your journey is what made you decide to stay in finland and i ask that because obviously it's a unique situation being there in itself uh pretty cool you know kind of younger going abroad all that that's really rad and then you you know you throw in something like a serious diagnosis with cancer and uh yeah that's very very unique um what made you decide to stay there for the first part of treatments versus coming back to the states you know um flack i i just really wanted to be in finland still and i at the beginning i don't know if you have a similar experience but i was very like toxically optimistic at the beginning of this i was sure that i was i, I was sure i was going to heal myself with positivity um <laughs> and so i just i i planned on uh getting through treatment and continuing my life as normal i also had no idea that there it would be no normal to go back to you know um after after treatment so i i just stayed there kind of not knowing um that things were going to go the way they were going to go and also i i think they they kind of planned on starting treatment really quickly after my diagnosis so It, they, like they already had a plan when i got my diagnosis they were like you're going to come here on this day and do this and stuff so it was like they didn't really even ask if i wanted to go home um so i just kind of i i didn't so it's fine but it just that's just kind of how it happened i guess oh i can't hear you that's <laughs> my bad classic so i have um Yeah, this gamer headset and it's got like this extra oh my God. mic where if you flip it up, but then they, there's a mute on the computer. Anyways, age of technology. <laughs> When I was teaching online, I would do that with my students and they'd usually sometimes they'd let me go for like a few minutes at a time and then they no. step in. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, That's cruel. Yeah, it was always pretty funny. But uh <laughs> So I was going to I was going to share that we have I guess similar uh there's some I guess similarities in our situations in that I had been living in California 
for about three years when I had been diagnosed. And I don't, I had a good group of friends by that point, but no family out here. Wow. And one of the questions was like, well, you know, how come you don't go home? A lot of people would ask. And um, for me, I'm Where's so fortunate. Yeah, Chicago area. I lived in the, I grew up in a suburb called Naperville, about cool. 40 minutes from, yeah, 40 minutes from Chicago. Cool. Love Chicago. Yeah, yeah it's fun. I actually played, I play hockey too. And we did spend a little time in Minnesota just throughout the years, um, yeah. travel hockey and stuff. And then we also did a cool pond hockey tournament up in like St. Paul area. It's a Labatt outdoor pond hockey. It's a big three on three tournament, but that was always fun too. Awesome. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. So you were, you were oh, in California, no, no family. Yeah. Yeah. No family. And, um, great group of friends they really helped uh you know helped pick up the slack to make things a lot easier when you're going through those those you know the parts with cancer but also my family they would come out when needed you know treatment weekends or if i had any major surgeries my mom or dad would come in and work together to where you know someone was out here for four or five weeks at a time if needed so very sure. fortunate in that sense and then I was also going to share that this is technically my second time with cancer. When I was a child, I was diagnosed at age four and we were actually living in London at the time. Wow. And yeah. So again, kind of similarities with the uh, foreign experience, yeah. the healthcare, universal healthcare type thing over in England. Right. Because there's NHS, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And I received all of my care over there. In fact, um, we had come back to Chicago at one point for another opinion, but uh, they kind of put us back on a flight because the care was radically different in that it was going to be, I think, more helpful in a sense. Anyways, so I, I just think it's interesting hearing those similarities. And one of the questions I had with that is, can you tell us? about what it was like navigating a foreign healthcare system versus what it's like here in the United States? Um, yeah, I've actually, I, I think I'm kind of an odd one out as far as that goes, because um, in my, from, from what I understand, well, <laughs> what I know, cancer treatment is expensive as hell in the U.S., and if you don't have, I mean, even if you do have insurance, it still can be just like outrageously expensive. And there's like the deductible thing that you need to meet and all of that. And that all of it's kind of like new to me because as I oh, mentioned. Yeah, wait, I got to interrupt you. I, I was going to say that stuff is so foreign to me and I'm not motivated by it at all. Just don't care about it. Like, you know, I teach special ed, like, yeah, so basically I was going to say trying to navigate this stuff was a real challenge for me. And so you don't need to give us like the total details and go into all the info. But yeah, just keep telling us a little bit. So it, we got things like deductible and it is very expensive versus like, yeah. what, what? how about in Finland? Would you see a lot of bills? Would you have to pay out of pocket for a lot of stuff? Um, At the beginning, I didn't. So there is this like, there's this thing called Kela, which is kind of like 
the equivalent of government money here and um where you get if you're sick it's called and um and if you're sick you get paid a, i don't even remember anymore but a certain amount every month um specifically to pay your medical bills and but they they weren't much i mean sometimes i would have one that came for a couple hundred uh but very rarely that happened medications were three euros each and then after i hit a certain point they were free um for a year like in the in the year's time and um yeah so at the at the very beginning i didn't have this kayla card and so i was having to pay that's like kind of the equivalent of like insurance i guess or government money i don't i don't know anyways it's weird <laughs> um i didn't have the kayla card so i had to you know new lasta like the shot you give yourself after treatment right. to, or fulfill or whatever there's a bunch of different ones but in finland i was getting new lasta and um i had to pay like a thousand bucks for that out of pocket a couple of times but then they gave me that money back once i i got on the program so um it was it was like really nice but i have to say what i wanted to say is that my experience in the u.s actually has been really really good because as soon as i got here i got on i, I was able to start getting um MA medical assistance in Minnesota covers everything except like I'll go to random I'll probably pay 60 bucks a month for medications and all of that stuff combined I probably pay that much so um and then shortly after I was able to get on um SSI as well government money for disability um because I have stage four cancer and um, so they, they said, if you have a disease resulting in death, you can get this. And I was like, okay, I'll take it like 800 bucks a month. Sure. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of my experience. That was, sorry, that was kind of babbling, but that's no, kind of my, good. With, I realized it's kind of similar. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's interesting. That's cool. I'm glad to hear that. It's been a good experience. It sounds like in both spots for you. Yeah, which is weird. I realize it's not like that for everyone. So I yeah, feel very and, privileged. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I feel like I've been in the same boat in that I have had a good experience, certainly in terms of care and help and support and with the healthcare stuff. It just seems like, um, although I will say it is extremely expensive. Like it, not only am I technically dying from this disease, but I'm slowly going broke in the process. Right. Like it's so much money. Um, yeah. And like you, you just think again, I'm so bad at understanding and navigating the healthcare piece, but yeah, me too. what I understand, like we can do better. We should be able to do better. So, I mean, we're, you know, the U S United States of America, like we got to do better at some of these pieces. I think that's yeah. probably for another episode someday. But, um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what that transition was like for you coming from Finland back to America. 
was that, you know, just emotional journey as well. How was it to, especially as you're undergoing some like cancer treatments? Um, well, I think like, you know how when you're in treatment, you're kind of in survival mode. So you don't like, I, I don't know. I was really focused on that and I barely mourned or grieved leaving Finland and leaving my friends because um, I honestly was just like so low on energy. And so I was so drained and my brain fog was so bad. And I just, I kind of was glad to have a bit of an escape um, from (laughs) all the goodbyes, like saying goodbyes, it takes so much energy and you're supposed to cry and stuff, but I just wasn't really feeling it. So, so it was just, it took a lot of energy and um, I was, I was happy to have a new start basically. Um, yeah, when I got here, it was a little bit difficult because my uncle died like the day after I got home and my grandma died like three days after I got home. And that was, again, I didn't cry when my grandma died, which we were pretty close. I mean, considering I lived in Finland, we were pretty close. Um, and I didn't cry. And that was really, I didn't understand that. That was really strange. I still haven't really processed why that happened. But um, what was really, really hard for me was that my mom, my rock, just went into a really dark place. Um, and it was her mom that died. And she, she just, she had been so strong for me. And she was so tired. She worked so hard to help get me packed up um, when we came home from Finland. And then she came home and right away had these two deaths in our family. And especially her mom was so hard for her. And she she felt guilty. She felt like maybe if she had been here and been able to advocate for my grandma and get her better care in the hospital and Uh, had gotten her to the hospital sooner and stuff maybe maybe she would still be alive so my mom just took on a lot and I don't know about you but when my parents are upset when they're mad when they're sad whatever it really takes a toll on me so um so yeah that that was the hardest part yeah that's extremely difficult and I agree uh, especially as you describe your mom as your rock, it seems like, yeah, when they're, when they're hurting, it, it hurts you more, maybe more so than, you know, than anything. Right. Yeah. You kind of think those people are like invincible in a way and to see them that vulnerable and in that much pain, it's, it's very, very uh, difficult. I was actually just saying to a woman we talked with yesterday for the podcast that I always find myself worrying about my mom. And then I had to remind myself that she's the toughest, toughest customer I've ever met. And uh, like, man, I don't know why I'm worrying about her. She's going to be okay. You know, she's. Yeah. You're talking uh, about like worried about her when you die. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. When I die and like, actually my grandfather just passed away recently as well, about a month ago. And, um, that was my mom's dad. And 
they live together wow. and uh, I know that's been weighing heavy on her heart as well. So that's been, uh, that's been real tough, but good stuff coming up. She's about to retire from her job as a teacher. And then at the end of this month, she's going to come out here to California. And I found a spot for her real close to the Harbor by the beach. So she's going to stay with us for a couple months. So it'll be nice. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah for sure. But yeah, yeah, I hear you in that sense. It, it can be hard with uh, the folks to see them struggling. Yeah. And I mean, likewise, it's hard for them to watch us. And that's something I never understood at the beginning. I thought, you know, I'm the one going through this cancer thing. So I'm the one who really is struggling here. But sometimes I feel like it's almost harder to watch your loved one going through something tough and being sad and depressed and just not finding any joy in anything. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's really, really, really tough. Yeah, it is. I, um, yeah, that's a really hard part. It sounds odd, but I almost like I am thankful in the sense that I'm the one who's sick versus like one of my sisters or my mom or dad or someone. Cause just what you said, it'd be so hard to see that. And, um, I just feel like this is supposed to be, you know, the it's supposed to be me for some whatever reason. <laughs> I get I was, that. I, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. No, you're good. Yeah. Do you feel that way as well? I mean, what do you, I like, do. How do you grapple with your diagnosis? Um, Especially you mentioned early on being very optimistic and same thing. Like when I got diagnosed, it was considered a stage three, but I'm like, stage three that's nothing like hey i had stage four when i was four years old right like a year of treatment surgery knock it out dumb deal right and uh obviously it didn't play out that way so just tell me a little bit about i guess what that was like for you as you kind of learned about how severe this was your diagnosis um well so yeah i had this period at the beginning um probably the first like four or five months where I felt really, really optimistic about everything. And I, I told my doctors, I don't want to hear any percentages about, you know, how many people die from rhabdo and blah. I have rhabdomyosarcoma, by the way. I haven't said that yet. Um, but I, yeah, I, I was so optimistic. And then what happened was pretty early on, they saw a spot in my lung um, on the CT scan. And they were like, well, we're not going to know really what this is, if it's cancer or like residual infection or what it is um, for six weeks. I think it was that they said, um, we're going to have to wait to take scans again and see if it's grown or disappeared or what it is. So, um, so during that time was the first time I felt in my life insanely depressed and um just so 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 low i i was suicidal i told my mom um i want to jump under the train we would take a train to helsinki every day this the center and i, I told her i want to jump under the train or um i want to just go fly home to minnesota and quit all treatment and just die and i i felt just like life was so 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 pointless 
um, if I was just going to die anyways, and I was never going to heal from this disease. I didn't at that time. I didn't, I, I didn't see myself living alongside cancer. I saw, you know, myself healing from cancer. And if that wasn't going to happen, there was no point. So, um, so I struggled with that for those six weeks. And then I had scans. I, I got on antidepressants. I should say that too. And those really helped me to, after about two weeks, it just kicked in that, okay, nothing's different, but you can handle these things. You it's, it's lighter, you know, it's not different, but it's lighter and you can carry more. So that's kind of how I felt. Um, after I took the antidepressants and, but for the first time, that's how I accept, I accepted death, I guess. And I say that now, um, you know, accepting death was so different then than it is now because I hadn't had any real trauma, you know, like medical, I I'd been through chemo, but it was pretty easy physically on me. The first, the first, um, my first treatment that I went through was, you know, it made me tired, but it never made me like really sick or lose a bunch of weight or anything like that. So, um, so I had it pretty easy going and I had never experienced like moments where I actually felt like I was going to die like I have now. And so I don't know if I really accepted death then, but that's when I started to accept that maybe this cancer is never going away and I have to learn to live alongside it. And I forget what the initial question was. Now I kind of went off on a tangent. No, that but- was perfect. It was <clears throat> I mean, I feel like you answered it beautifully. It was basically just how did you learn to grapple with your diagnosis and the idea that this might not be a curable disease? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for being so honest and vulnerable with your story and sharing that because it's scary and it's hard to even say those things because you're thinking them and it's like, man, if I share this with people, like, what are they going to think? And, um, I, yeah, I, I feel like uh, that re- a lot of that resonates with me quite a bit. So wow. it's it's just heavy, you know, when you uh, get to that point where you know that there's really not a whole lot you can do with the disease in terms of like treatments and how to approach it. And so I guess it sounds like when, so you mentioned that you had had that scan, there was a waiting period, and then did they do another scan to and see that that spot your lung had grown i guess how exactly did they did a doctor kind of explain like hey there's you know this is going to be something we can't cure if that's how actually, i understand it as well if that makes sense actually actually um that time it disappeared so that that was like 5 months into my uh into my journey with cancer and um i didn't so a total mind fuck i'm sure in a sense yep yeah Yes, yeah. exactly. Total mind. Cut. You're probably thinking like, okay, good. Like things are, you know, it's gone. Things look good, right? Yes. And, and they, you know, they, they were fine for a long time. Um, it wasn't really until, so that was like, that was in 2018, like 
probably October 2018. It wasn't until September 2020 that I actually became, had lung metastases and um, became stage four and terminal. And um, actually when that happened, my doctor came in and he, he said, he greeted me with, oh shit. So he's the doctor I had had for my, all my treatment um, the first time around. And it never, I say the first time around, but it never really went away all the way. It just kind of was stable for a while. And um, yeah, he, he greeted me with, oh shit. And that's when he said, you might only have three months to live. And that was September, 2020. Now we're year and a half after that. Um, so I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I would say I, um, I had stable scans yesterday. I still got this pesky, pesky tumor on my pleura, the, the lining of my lung and my chest wall. So that that's big and it causes pain. Um, but it's for now not going to kill me, but it will, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I think when things are really bad with my health in January, I was really, really sick. I was in the hospital for 18 days and I was having trouble breathing. I was hallucinating. Things looked super, super bad. And they were like, not hundred percent sure that I was going to make it out of there. Um, so when those kinds of times are happening, I feel like I'm stuck in survival mode. You know, I don't know if you have a, if you feel a similar way, like in your worst moments that you, you're not even like focused on being scared about death because you're just so focused on like surviving in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, totally. Uh, well, we're glad that you're feeling better and doing doing good for well for the most part now or at least got past that rough patch it sounds like and it seems yeah. like maybe you're a little bit better can you tell us about just what some of those symptoms and are like and um just the everyday i guess grind and even for as this is a podcast we can't see you per se or the listeners can't i noticed that you've got like some sort of breathing tube or something in your nose it looks like can you just tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about what some of those instruments are like and how they help you yeah um i have a lot of mobility aids and just aids in general um, first of all this is a wig this is not my real hair i wish my real hair was it looks great. thank yeah. you love i love it, it. literally 23 dollars yeah, on amazon nice yeah, <laughs> thank you lovely. of course thank you thank you thank you so i use that which i consider an aid i guess because it helps me feel normal and helps me with my dignity so i consider it an aid um and then i i have a uh, i use an oxygen tank so i have a nasal cannula on all the time um right now I, i've tried to go without it and that didn't go so hot for me so um so i i try to i just keep it on all the time, which is very limiting because it oxygen tanks run out of air. And so you can't be out for too long. 
Um, you always gotta be watching your how much air you have left in the tank um, because if you're running out, you gotta get home. So it's that that's a little bit limiting, but I'm finding ways to live around it and um, and ultimately, like I don't need to be out for that long. Usually, the only thing that's hard is like I can't go. I can never spend the night anywhere because my tank only lasts like together I have two and they last about five or six hours. So um, I could never go sleep over anywhere, which is difficult like for dating because <laughs> I live with my parents. So it's just my, my parents are really cool with me going anywhere, but like um, it, I can't. So that's interesting. That's for another podcast, right? <laughs> Dating with cancer. Oh my god. Yeah, um, that can be. I'm sure. I mean, yeah, I hear you. <clears throat> that's a if, whole. If you want to have me back game. for a Dating with Cancer, I would. Yeah, that'd be a good one. That would be a good one. Yeah, um, but I also use wheelchair when I have to walk any sort of distance. I use a wheelchair, and um, and I use. I have right here well okay i don't know how to turn the video but anyways i have a commode in my room in case i can't make it to the bathroom in time and i also have a shower chair so those are kind of all my mobility aids and just aids in general and um i'm grateful for them because like i said they help pres preserve dignity and um and independence yeah for sure, for sure. Um, yeah. How have your folks responded with all this and your parents, just how have they helped navigate or um, I guess, what, uh, yeah, how are they doing? They do, uh, this is what I tell everyone who asks, they do about as well as I'm doing. So they really, they really, um, they have good days if I have good days and they have bad days if I have bad days. So they, although they do try to, you know, be, be strong for me and it's rare that, you know, we all break down. We all totally, it's very rare that that happens. It happened the other day. That might've actually been the first time ever that we all, we had a fight and then we just, and that just doesn't happen. We're really close. We're not angry people. We're, um yeah we're, we're really close so sometimes happen. it's needed sometimes you just got to feel it out and just yeah feel those emotions and yeah let everything out kind of with anyone and it, totally. it's not just parents it's roommates it's partners it's it's anything like yep. that yeah so yeah. um so yeah they they're okay we handle everything all right, I would say. We do a good job as a family. And um, tonight, me and my mom are going to a concert. We're going to the Dua Lipa concert. Oh, cool. It's going to be so much Very fun. Very cool. That's yeah. awesome. Like Very ultimate fun. pop star dreams. It's going to yeah. be fun. Good. Yeah. I hope it's a great time. We um, read an article about, so I teach special ed, and every week we have a news article and yeah. our students and I read about it. And I think she was up for some, like maybe it was album of the year or something like that. 
but she was uh i remember we read all about her and a couple other pop stars and the kids were like really stoked about it so <gasps> that's gonna be awesome that's I hope it's amazing. a great time yeah how how have you managed to continue working like with yeah, treatment? So are, you, are you on treatment right now i am and i'm actually not working currently i started a new treatment in january of this year 2022 and i just well back in like december i had kind of fallen ill ended up in the hospital one of those stints for whatever reason the last three years without fail november december i'm in the hospital i don't know why it just oh. like happens like that so i took some time off in december and then when we started the new treatments, I took more time just to kind of see how the body would respond. And so far, I've been doing really well. Uh, my oncologist is pretty stoked. So that's great. And great. I'm hoping maybe, yeah, I'm hoping maybe after spring break to go back. Um, I will say the district, my team, they work so hard for me. For example, this school year, I had first and second period as my prep and consult period. We get two yeah. periods off contractually. And my principals worked with me to where I could have those times off. That way I didn't have to start teaching till like 1030 ish. And I have a home health nurse that I see every morning. So he would come, you know, first thing in the morning around eight or eight thirty. We kind of get started with the day, fix me up, get me ready. And then it's off to work. But um, yeah, it, it, I always really enjoy working and teaching and being with the kids and the staff tremendous people they've helped me so much throughout this experience and wow yeah i figure if i can keep it up then I, i'll keep trying and um when i need time off i'm lucky to have that support and people you know grant that time so wow that's uh, awesome that's so cool that you have such i know that's like a huge problem among cancer patients is like having understanding workplaces yes um, so that's such a gift oh it is and these people my team and the district and like people have donated time off pto to where for example when i was first diagnosed i needed to take like three or four months off towards the end of the year after a major surgery and a bunch of people around the district donated pto and i was able to cover the whole you know that whole time without needing to uh yeah like lose salary or lose my job and all that stuff so i've been very lucky um wow. and there's it's like having cancer like this i mean it's a full-time job in itself right yeah i mean i'm not sure if that's how it feels for you but between Definitely. treatments going to treatments doctors fighting with insurance side Recovering. effects that lay yeah. up yeah all that stuff i mean it, it's a job and it's hard it's you know, hard it's even to easy. like make time for friends and make plans and commitments because you never yes. know you never know how chemo's gonna affect you that this totally. week or uh it's totally it's yeah i um i kind of joke that i don't make long-term plans because <laughs> exactly that you just don't really know what's gonna what it's gonna be from day to day yeah Wow. Um, yeah, it can be tricky. How has it impacted your social life having this disease? It sounds like you had a great group in Finland. Um, but it, I give you credit. You still it also sounds like you keep in touch with those people. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
we do a pretty good job, especially with my closest friends of staying in touch and um, much better job than I did when I was in Finland, staying in touch with my friends here, but they still rock. Like they, they're still here for me and uh, everything's cool. So you know, life gets in the way of video calls. Now I make, I have time for a lot of video calls because they're easy to cancel. Um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's a pretty like low, what's the word I'm looking for? It's an easy commitment to make. So it's, it's easy to stay in touch with them. But um, I'm lucky in the sense that my friends really just gathered around me and supported me um, and asked what they could do, asked if they could come help me carry my groceries you know, like typical, <laughs> they assume you have cancer, so you're going to be too weak to carry your groceries, like things that are not necessarily true, <laughs> but, um, but they, yeah, they, they just would do anything that I needed. Um, so I know a lot of people struggle with like losing friends and friends like dropping off the face of the earth. Um, when they get cancer, just because they don't know what to say, or they're too, they just don't know what to do. Um, but I only had like a couple shitty hookup guys uh, drop off the face of the planet for me. And my life is probably better without them anyways. So <laughs> my friends have been great. Social life is That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. That's great to hear. Do you miss any aspects of like, I mean, I'm sure you do. Maybe it's not a good question, but just like going out. One of the things we talked about briefly the other day was like things that cancer patients lose or you have to give up in order to oh continue being alive and balancing this disease. Yeah, is there anything that, like really specific that comes to mind? That is a spot on question. Um, I'm dealing with that so much right now. I recently. <laughs> this weekend um i i've been dating a guy for like a year uh but our relationship is kind of just like ever since i started ever since the beginning of 2022 when i spent all the time in the hospital and kind of physically changed a lot as far as like my i can't drive anymore um maybe TMI, but I can't really have a physical relationship with anyone. I I probably can't even hold my breath long enough to kiss a guy. I um I I've been dating a guy for like a year and we officially on Friday talked about how okay we're just friends. We can meet other people if we want to. And that's okay. I'm okay with it. It's been happening gradually so it's not like it happened all at once but um dating is a huge thing I feel like I miss out on and struggle with um because I I am honest all the time how can I not be I use a wheelchair I can't drive I can't drink and I because of my painkillers and I have a nasal cannula like I, I have to be honest from the start about my my situation so it scares a lot of people away and um so yeah i i feel like i miss out on on that a lot yeah that's certainly a tough 
yeah, that's definitely a tough element to all of this. What about you? Yeah, I mean, similar boat with the dating thing. Um, the body just not what it used to be, right? Doesn't yes. really function as well. Um, even if it does, like, it's just some of that stuff's not really as enjoyable, right? Some of the physical stuff. Um, I was a marathon runner before I got sick, so wow, don't even yeah. walk anymore. Right. Yeah. So like elements like that with dating. Um, and then for me, like, yeah, like hockey, I don't play hockey nearly. I might skate like once a year if that wow. just be like a special occasion. So stuff like that. Um, going out similar. Um, not that I don't go out anymore, but just it's harder, right? Like you're just you can't really get drunk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. Yeah, right. And then if you do, it's like, man, I don't know about you, but my hangovers are going to be like days long. Oh, right? uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's with age too. But yeah, so yeah, you you give up a lot to try to stay alive, but yeah. it's worth it too. It, it's it is worth it, obviously, right? I really try to just revel in little things and enjoy those little moments. Even today, walking to the beach with my two roommates it was like man we were looking at the water and just felt great to be there what a we live in california and it's a beautiful yeah. day like there's so much happening in the world right now and this is what mm -hmm. we're doing which is awesome i agree so I, I find it really helpful to like focus on just little joys and um for a long time i'm sure you struggled with this too like we just talked about, we're not the same people that we were physically, emotionally, mentally um, before cancer. And so for the longest time, I struggled with like comparing myself to pre-cancer Dana and uh, wishing that I was her. Um, but now I'm kind of in a place where I can find simple, I can find joy in simple, tiny things. And um it's actually better. It's better that way. It's, it doesn't, you know, it's great. My days are great. I'm really happy. Yeah. Generally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to explain to people that it is very, very odd. I'll be the first to admit it, but I haven't, I don't think I've ever been happier since finding like a certain balance with this disease. Yeah. Despite the circumstances. Right. So it's quite the paradox. And it's, yes. it is sad to me to know that it kind of took this for me to get there. But at the same time, like I would I've gotten there without this disease. I, I like to think so. Hopefully. Yeah. It's not like I was miserable before this or anything. But no, me neither. It's just different. Right. Like truly, you really, truly try to embrace the little things and just appreciate and smile and be happy in each moment. And yeah. that's where the paradox is. Right. Because I haven't been happier. But at the same time, I'm dying from this horrible disease yeah um, but with that too like what an opportunity that with these difficult circumstances there's still a chance to enjoy life and see a lot of beauty in the world yeah so, it's really cool but it's also heartbreaking because it's like wow i finally found this and like like you said i was never sad I mean, I was sad sometimes, but like I was generally a pretty happy person before I got sick too. 
but now it's it's just different and that makes it that makes dying like all the worse but um we know it's coming and we we accept it we we try to accept it i guess um i want to quickly ask i know we're kind of running over here but um are you planning to utilize medical aid in dying yeah, so and I'm glad you brought it up too because I wanted to get there as well. And in terms of like time wise, I've got nothing going today, so we're really flexible. Sweet um, ass. We don't want to take up yeah too much of your time either. But uh, yeah. So basically, and I'm glad. Good segue. Uh, the topic of this podcast is obviously medical aid and dying. So we wanted to hear a little <laughs> bit about your journey with that as well. Uh, for myself, I'll just kind of give a quick, I guess, background story. I hadn't really ever heard of it. I anticipate now that I look back, I recognize like, yes, it makes sense that California offers this. And I knew that other places in the world had done so as well. But a few years ago, it was December 2020. I was really had fallen really ill, was in the hospital. My oncologist and I had had a lot of he came in one evening. We had a discussion. I explained to him that I was really afraid that even when I was mentally and emotionally ready to die, that I just physically won't go and I'll be stuck in agony and suffering from the disease. And that's when he explained that medical aid in dying is an option for people in California. And um, yeah, I, we went through the whole process and we did complete all the paperwork and the uh, you know legal necessities for me to have that access. So I do have access to it. I have, I will plan to use it if necessary. I have certain, I guess, guidelines in my own head as to what that would look like. And it really, it just comes back to, you know, immense and uh, immense pain, just suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of a brief piece on, I guess, where I stand with it, but tell us about yourself and how you learned about it and just, where you're at with everything, because it might be different in Minnesota. So maybe you could share with our listeners what that's all about. Yeah, so it is different in Minnesota. It's not legal here. Um, and I I feel the same way as you do um, about it, that I'm not sure I would utilize it. But if it came down to it and my pain and suffering were severe enough, I would definitely like to at least even if I wouldn't utilize it, like to just have it there. That's just what I desperately want is to have it um, as an option, as a choice. Uh, so that I, you know, I, I because even, even in January when I was in the hospital, I remember being like short of breath and just not being able to catch my breath. And that was only for maybe 10 minutes. If I had to just survive like that for hours, days, weeks, who knows how long. It just would be so, so unimaginably unple unpleasant that I, I just can't imagine dealing, like I said, unimaginably unpleasant. I can't imagine dealing with that for um, any large amount of time so just it would be so cool to have medical aid and dying as a choice so i'm i'm working with compassion and choices right now to advocate for it i'm mostly working as a storyteller but i'm also 
kind of on action teams, um, doing political stuff when I can, but I totally don't understand any of that. So it's it's been a learning curve, um, one that I'm willing to willing to jump on, but um, it's been. Yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a journey with them, and I don't know honestly if I'll see the act, the medical aid and dying act, pass in my lifetime, which is really unfortunate because um, I would really like that. So, anyways, I do want to share that um, I wasn't always comfortable with the thought of utilizing made, and uh, the first. You asked what, how I was introduced to it. Um, so the first time I ever, ever heard of, or I mean, you know, I, I knew about like assisted suicide, so to say, and all of those things. But um, the first time I ever like thought about it and maybe thought about it in terms of like me possibly using it as a sick person was I watched the movie Paddleton. Have you seen Paddleton? No, is that the one with the bear? No, it's oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, I imagine a talking bear. Um, that must be oh something different, obviously. But um, all right, tell me more. So Paddleton, you said Paddleton. It's a really weird name, but okay. Paddleton. Um, <laughs> Paddleton is the name of this game that Ray Romano and Mark Duplass play that's it's basically just those two i think it's a low budget film <laughs> and um they they play this game with a ball on a paddle and they call it paddleton nice and yeah um so i my first like the first time i ever heard of made really or thought about it was when i watched that movie because mark duplass's character um gets really sick has terminal cancer and he lives in a jurisdiction where um, made is legal. And so he gets the prescription and um, he ends up taking it, not to ruin the movie, spoil the movie for you, but <laughs> he ends up taking it um, some months later with Ray, him and Ray Romano are like best friends. So he just, he's wrapped up in a blanket and he says, I think I'm ready right now. And he has shown in previous scenes, shown some signs of suffering and pain. And so he took the drug and he didn't take the, and he didn't take any anti-anxiety meds. So he was like having a bit of a panic attack while he was dying. And it was just, when he realized that like, oh, I drank this and I can't go back. And so it was just like a little bit of an uncomfortable introduction to it. It wasn't like Bob's choice or how to die in Oregon. I feel like the deaths are much more peaceful and pleasant and almost fun. <laughs> uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but you know, they're, they're they're excited to be done suffering and they're excited to be there with their loved ones and to be conscious and to you know consciously make this decision at the end is so i i feel like that was kind of a not the best introduction to it and it made me i thought it was like the hardest cancer movie i've ever watched because i just felt really uncomfortable with it um at the beginning but then 
I came back to the States and um, a friend from high school was working with CNC and he introduced me to everybody and that's how I got involved and um, it's become obviously so close to my heart. Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, heavy stuff. Have you considered, I guess, what your end of life experience might be like? Especially you mentioned that you're not sure if this legislation will be available to you to access, for you to access in Minnesota. Um, yeah, I have considered, I guess, do you mean like what it will look like in terms of like how I'm going to die or? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. Um, basically exactly that in a sense. Um, for example, we're, we, we hear stories about people who relocate to a different state so they can have access to medical aid and dying. Is that something you would ever consider doing? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I don't think so. I have already had to resettle um, permanently in Minnesota from where I was living before, as you know, as we've talked about a lot in this podcast. But um, so I don't think and I also don't think my family would really be up for it. I mean, if I said I really wanted it, they'd probably do whatever I ask, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're great. And they want to make me comfortable and happy, but I just, I don't, I don't see that happening for me. Um, what I do see happening is myself enrolling in hospice really early. So I can, you know, I don't want to, I want to take advantage of hospice and I want to be there basically six months before the end as long as I can be there and um, I want to be at home. And so obviously I want hospice nurses here. Maybe at the end, uh, I would like to utilize palliative sedation, um, but I don't really know. I think part of me a little bit wants to experience um, what it's like to die. You hear a lot of from different people, a lot of, um, you know, that they see certain things or um, see, meet people again. And I think that's all hallucination, but I kind of, I don't know. I don't think at that stage it would be so much suffering um, because you're on a lot of pain meds, you're hallucinating, you're, you're kind of in a different zone. So I, I, I'm kind of interested in, in experiencing that at the end of my life, which is why I don't say I would necessarily utilize medical aid in dying, but I've never experienced dying. So I don't know if it's, if it's going to be too hard, then I would want to utilize MAID. Um, but I, I might not have that option. So, it's, yeah, it's kind of. Yeah, that's. Uh... Again, it comes back to the, at least just granting people the option. Wouldn't that be nice, right? We could just yeah. have that option. Um, and then I've heard similar things in relation to the dying process. From my understanding, it can be like, it seems like your body will flood 
your brain floods your body with some of those good chemicals to kind of make things easier for my understanding. In fact, I was telling Hasbon recently that I had read a news article about a man who was having a MRI done. He had epilepsy and he was an older gentleman in his 80s. He actually had a heart attack during the MRI and he had a DNR. So they didn't resuscitate and they actually were able to record the final like 10 to 15 minutes of him dying on the on the machine. And they did see that. Yeah. After even after his heart stopped and the human body kind of stopped functioning, there was still some brain activity and they wonder, you know, we hear about uh, kind of the life flashing before the eyes type thing. And the doctors, I guess, make that educated guess or hypothesize that, yeah, it's our body and our brain flooding our mind with some of those hopefully good memories and send yeah. us off in a good direction on the way out. But who knows? Yeah. Wild stuff. Exactly. Who knows? And that's, that's why it's really tough and why I would just like to have the choice. So it's like when the time comes, I've got like my options laid in front of me and Cause I don't know. I do not know. Like we just said, who knows? So um, it would just be nice to have several options. Yeah. And one of the questions that we ask, I feel like most of our guests is what is their perspective on how we deal with death in this country? For example, do you think that most people are afraid to have this discussion about their own death or just death in general. And with that, why do you think that might be? Well, I think it's because it's, uh, we don't have any information about what happens after you die. And uh, some people with a strong enough faith feel like heaven is a better, I, I have, I have one friend, I grew up in a Lutheran church, going to Lutheran church, and one of my best friends, I'm not religious anymore or spiritual or anything, I'm, I'm agnostic, um, but one of my good friends is still pretty religious, and her mom is super religious, and um, she said to me one time, I was talking to her on the phone, and she said, with all the chaos that's going on in the world, heaven's starting to look better and better every day. And it's like, wow, like (laughs) having, having that kind of faith um, would help a lot, but I think still the unknowns of what happens, um, what the dying process is like and how you experience it are all very unknown. And is it painful and is it scary? And, uh, I'm not going to see my loved ones again, at least for a while until they come to heaven too. all of those things. I think just the unknowns we don't, Americans don't like unknowns. Um, we, we spend a lot of money to have our futures, um, you know, laid out as well as we possibly can. And we, we spend a lot of money to go to college to have, clear good futures but um that you know death is one thing that's like totally out of our control and so is everything else but 
Americans feel like if they spend enough money, they can have more control, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely agree with some of that stuff, too. And it feels like. I'm not sure. Maybe if we don't talk about it, it won't happen type thing or something like Maybe. that. Yeah. And it, it's just odd because as we've been going through this podcast, I feel like my relationship with death has changed quite a bit. Really? And yeah, and even just going through this disease with cancer as well, I'm much more comfortable with the idea. Not as yeah. not afraid. You know, I'm not afraid to die anymore. Um, and yeah, it's not as hard to talk about this stuff with my family as well. I really, yeah. and that's what I wanted to ask. What did your family, how did they perceive the topic of medical aid and dying? Did your family and friends, was there support there? Was anybody adverse to the idea? Uh, what was that discussion like? Um, at first, my family wasn't super excited about it. They were kind of like, why are you into this? Like, what? what is this? But just kind of like I was before I got into it, just a little bit like, hmm, like, that's kind of scary. Why are you, you know, why are you interested in that? So, um, yeah, that's kind of how my family was. Friends, friends, I've been kind of very open about how, like, don't say the wrong thing to me about my disease. Um going through it so I think they've just kind of watched and listened and learned um that this is important to me so don't bash it and not you know I don't think any of them had strong enough opinion about it to um yeah to either like or dislike it agree or disagree with it except I have one friend in med school one of my very best friends and we've had some interesting disagreements about it because he says it's like such an ethical issue for doctors and um, that he thinks he will never bring it up with patients because he could get sued. And I was like, whoa, seriously, like your friend, your one of your best friends is dying and this is important to me and you don't, you're just like not going to at all work with me on making it a reality for terminally ill people in the future because you might get sued like that just seems like so bizarre to me that compassion should be over everything and for doctors and for him to say that was just like really bizarre and a little bit hurtful uh but i think he's like starting to warm up to the idea of it but i don't really know (laughs) Yeah, we are working on having a doctor join us who shares a similar viewpoint in that he does not prescribe it to his patients or won't really bring it up. And a lot of it's based, it seems like, on the ethical components to it. But there's still a lot, I think, you know, it's not exactly black and white. There's a lot of gray area with this subject. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's really complicated. And um, I think some people who say that they, you know, that they wouldn't bring it up to their patients, some physicians who say that I think 
they just might not be informed enough about like all the precautions that the the act um requires that you take in order to make sure that the patient is not being coerced or um you know that it's what the patient wants and so i think that it just like we need to like teach people what it actually is and um all of the things that protect patients from utilizing it if they don't want to yeah i agree it there's some there are definitely good safeguards in place and certainly it's a touchy subject i mean we're talking about all what you could argue is the most intimate and sacred topic and discussion that we have as a species right death like the final yeah the final moments and what happens it's the ultimate question um you've been awesome this has been really i've really enjoyed talking with you i i feel like we can keep on talking but um we i do try to keep it somewhat reasonable in terms of time for people (laughs) but we'll have to do another episode someday i think that'd be fun Maybe we'll do the dating episode, as we mentioned. Um, I've got chemo next week, but after that, I'm free as a bird to talk. So sweet. um, Sweet. So let's definitely do that, Flack. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, we will. That would be great. And I also like to send it over to Hasban. He always comes up with some good questions or, you know, talking points. Um, Hasban, if you're still there, you got anything for Dana? Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, I don't, I feel like it did. I, I just have one question, but it, it's more of a, a comment, like, I guess. Uh, and it's something uh, based on something you said, like earlier, first of all, I really just uh, enjoyed the convo and uh, thanks for opening up as you did. But um, the one thing that I kind of want to ask you about that I read about your background was that you were really into music. I believe that's why you moved to Finland in like the first place. And I'm sure that's something that you can't, um, that's not a, as part of your life as it was before. And I was just wondering if it was still part of your life in a different way. Um, I know you, you played the trombone before and mm-hmm. I was just wondering, um, yeah, if music is still a part of your life in some way. Um, so I, I quit playing trombone in like the summer of 2019. I actually, I, I took a break from trombone when I first got diagnosed, cause I was thinking I wouldn't be able to handle it with chemo. And, but I only took like a five month break and then I picked it back up again and actually prepared for my bachelor's recital. Um, nice. So I, I performed that. It was like a half an hour, 45 minute long recital, which was really cool. And um, my, my oncologist and a bunch of nurses actually came to watch it which was like such a cool experience. (laughs) Um, And yeah, uh, but then after that, I kind of put the horn away and I, I, I never really picked it up again, seriously. And um, it just, it felt like, you know, music is a really heavy career because you just, your own worst critic and, you're really never good enough for yourself. So I, it just felt after cancer, like it was too much to take on. And 
Uh, so I, I set the horn down and my relationship with music now is really beautiful, like listening to music and um, really, really like focusing on it. Um, that's definitely different and it's better, but I, I don't really play trombone ever. I pick it up once every couple of months and it sounds like shit. <laughs> So, no, um, that's that, that's like really cool that you still try and that you did that. I, I mean, I, I was reading about your background that you were just like you played with an orchestra, but you did a solo within yeah. the orchestra. That's really cool. And just hey. like, that, that, that like must have been a cool moment. Um, oh my god, sure. yes, yes, <laughs> one of my life highlights. For sure. Good for that's you, really Fred. Cool. We hey. were talking the other day. I was saying I have zero musical ability and I same. think it's so cool. And I'm a little envious of people who have that yeah, talent. Same. So good on you. I mean, it's just so rad. And Thank uh, you. yeah, the world is just a much better place when we got a little tunes to jam to. Oh so. my God. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. We all need it in our life. It's like a yes. form of a therapy. Um, and then the only other like comment I had was the story of your mom was really cool to hear too. You know, like it's like we were talking about you, but we were also talking about her story within your story. And uh, yeah, I just found it really fascinating that uh, you know she came out for six weeks, and then you know she kind of um, had to go back, and then she just like fuck it, I'm gonna go live with my daughter, and she mm -hmm. lived with you for a year. So the, the relationship you guys have is really cool and like beautiful and moms are just awesome we actually talked about this last podcast episode we interviewed a mom and uh um, wow yeah we were just moms talking about the fucking podcast slap. <laughs> yeah for sure yeah um, so that's uh yeah that's really cool i just really enjoyed that part like of the story and she sounds like a really cool person she is and we're she's my best friend i always said if i got married she'd be my maid of honor i don't think that's gonna happen but she totally oh, she's sweet. my best friend yeah that is sweet yeah well cool, cool friend this was awesome thank you again for all of your time and just opening up and sharing your heart with us and being vulnerable too some of this stuff is really heavy and it can take a lot of courage so we appreciate that Thanks for having me. It's always actually really healing for me to talk about what I've been through. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity and I had, I had a blast. Cool. Excellent. Well, we'll do it again. Definitely in the future. Cool. Until then, have fun at the beach. Soak up some sun that we don't have here <laughs> Bye. in Minnesota. Bye. Well, friend. All right. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye.